With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Barb McQuaid. Kimberly Atkins Store, Joyce Vance, and me, Jill Wine Banks. By now, all of you know we are going on tour next month to Portland, Oregon on May 12th, New York City on May 19th, and Washington, D.C. on May 21st. Go to the show notes for the link for politicon.com slash tour to get your tickets. They are selling fast, so please hurry. We want to meet you there. Okay, let's get on with the show, where, as always, it was hard to pick just three topics, but we did, and they are great. Today, we'll be discussing the Dominion lawsuit, which is going to trial and has had some really big developments this week. We're going to talk about Tennessee, where the two expelled legislators have been restored, and talk about what it means in terms of democracy and uh, civil rights. And then we'll talk about Shanquilla Robinson and the decision of the Department of Justice not to indict anyone uh, in her case and talk about whether someone could be extradited from America to Mexico to be tried there. And lastly, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But before we get to those topics, I want to talk about something that has been on my mind a lot lately, and that is, how do you give yourself permission and how do you escape, refresh, and recharge in a limited amount of time when your taxes are due and the news, your job, your life just won't stop? So, uh, Joyce, let's start with you. Do you give yourself permission to take a break? And what do you do when you do that? You know, I really do. And I do a lot of different things. I keep a yoga mat in my studio. If I've got just, you know, 20 minutes, I'll do yoga but I keep knitting by my side all the time. It's sort of my happy place. And I have a car project and an office project and a project that's sitting about um, six inches away from me right now because I always knit when I podcast. You know, you're talking about stuff that's stressful. We all have to take good care of ourselves and, and make sure that we de-stress whatever it is. So I think it's just a question of finding something that you can pick up or jump right into in the moment. What about you, Barb? Well, um, I find exercise is my go-to and it can be anything, but I think just moving physically um, gets my mind off things. It uh, releases my mind to think through things. And I feel, you know, I just feel like I'm in a different place when I'm done. So running, swimming, playing tennis, uh, any of the, riding my bike, any of those kinds of things makes me feel better. I think, you know, there's, there's science that talks about movement just makes you feel better, even going for a walk. So any of those things and, you know, depending on how much time you have, but I do make time in my life to do all of those things. And I think it, I think it helps. How about you, Kim? Do you have any de-stressors? I do. You know, I am a big meditator. I do believe in that. I even keep, um, uh, 
energy crystals, something like rose quartz or jade or something in my purse. So if I just get a few moments and I just want to um, zone out a little bit, I can put one of those in my hand, kind of recenter myself and, and refocus on what I'm doing. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, I also, I think I've mentioned this before, I do enjoy watching trash television shows. Actually, when you mentioned taxes, mm. Jill, while I was doing my taxes <laughs> this week, I was watching um, this Netflix show called Love is Blind in which people get engaged before they see each other. I mean, it's ridiculous. Oh. It's ridiculous. But I mean, it, 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 helped, it helped me get through doing my taxes, which is no fun. It made it a little more fun. So, uh, you know, we do all the things that we can. Yeah, those are all good advice. I sometimes will take a break to cook because I find it's really satisfying to mix and measure and stir and then put out something that's really tasty. And the best thing, though, for me is... I go for a walk with Brisby and my husband, and that really is a way of getting away. Um, planned exercise, you know, getting on a treadmill just doesn't do it for me. That's sort of like, I'm like thinking of all the things I should be doing instead of doing that. But being with Brisby and Michael sort of really takes me out of my world and lets me relax. So that's what I do. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Well, trial gets underway Monday in the $1.6 billion, with a B, dollar defamation case filed by Dominion Voting Systems against Fox News. Uh, and as we know, a judge already granted summary judgment that Fox reported false claims that Dominion voting machines were used to rig the 2020 presidential election of Joe Biden. So the key issue is whether Fox had the intent necessary to make out a defamation claim. Kim, what's, what's the legal standard that Dominion will need to prove in this case to establish liability for Fox? It's a pretty high standard, isn't it? It is a high standard. Generally speaking, it is not easy to win a defamation suit against a media organization. It's one of the hardest things there is to do because you have to prove something called actual malice, which even if it is a false statement, that's not enough. You have to show that the people in charge at that media organization either knew the statement was false when they broadcast it or that they acted with reckless disregard as to its truth or falsity. And one reason I think this case is moving to trial, it hasn't been settled, is because of the tidbits that we've received from the discovery that's happened that I think paints a really strong case that there was actual malice in this. I mean, everyone from Rupert Murdoch himself to Fox hosts to producers have said that they knew uh, that the, the claims that 
were being made by people they kept repeatedly putting on the air and talking about Dominion were false. You know, this is very this is very different from saying, you know, reporting something and, and doing due diligence and it turns out somebody gave you bad information that you didn't know. This seems like they knew. And I think that this is going to be a case that it lies in the exception where usually libel cases fail against media organizations. I think this one has a good chance of winning. Yeah, there's some been some real good smoking gun emails and deposition testimony that you know, f- for instance, that they knew that uh, Biden won Arizona, and uh, people wanted to stop reporting that because they said it was bad for ratings. We're losing viewers. We got to go back to talking about the fraud claims. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think it's going to be really interesting to watch that play out. Um, Joyce, just uh, this past week, the judge in the case ordered sanctions against Fox News for failing to comply with some discovery obligations in the case. What was the violation and and what do you think about the sanctions? You know, it's such an interesting situation because um, piggybacking off of Kim's conversation about actual malice, what we learned this week is that Fox withheld important information both about Rupert Murdoch's management status with Fox, but also there are audio tapes that people have probably heard by now. It started out on Alex Wagner's show on MSNBC, and it's Fox staff members and hosts having conversations with people in the Trump campaign or with lawyers. And during those conversations, there's an acknowledgement that no problems were found with Dominion's voting um, machines. So, Pretty damaging stuff. The judge was pretty righteously angry. The problem, though, is what do you do about sanctions when the trial is about to start? You know, delaying the trial to sort it all out would benefit Fox, not Dominion. And so the judge wisely didn't do that. But he said he's likely to appoint a special master to look into what went on here with Discovery. And there's the possibility down the road of sanctions against Fox. I suppose the lawyers could find themselves referred to their bar associations for some sort of disciplinary action if there's evidence that they were um, involved in that sort of delay. But, you know, for now, um, the problem that can't be fixed is that if Dominion had access to this evidence earlier, it might have won a full summary judgment in this case. The judge ordered a limited summary judgment and said, look, Dominion, you don't have to prove at trial. Normally you would have to prove, but now you don't have to prove that these statements Fox made were false. I'm finding as a matter of law that there is unequivocal evidence and and no material issue of fact that Fox was putting false information out. What Fox has to, to prove to the jury at trial, and this is what Kim talked about, is this actual malice concept, um, knowing falsity or reckless disregard for truth of the material. And so perhaps the ultimate sanction against Fox isn't the one that the judge imposes here. It's the fact that Dominion now has this evidence, which is really compelling evidence of actual malice. And, and ultimately, the penalty that Fox may pay is a a more grievous loss at trial, perhaps greater punitive damages, because I suspect that the judge will let Dominion at trial get into the idea that this information was delayed in discovery, which really will buttress any conclusion that Fox was dilatory here and that they were dilatory because they knew that the information that they put on their airwaves was false at the time they did it. 
Jill, let me follow up on something Joyce just mentioned. She she said that uh, Fox uh, misled the court about the role of Rupert Murdoch. Uh, They said he was an executive of the Fox parent company, the Fox Corporation, but not an executive for Fox News. And that turned out to be inaccurate. What, What is the significance of that revelation? And do you think Fox is in more trouble as a result of that? It's hard to imagine Fox being in more trouble than it already is, <laughs> honestly. They have already had so much evidence released of their malice and their knowledge that they were acting with false information. Um, and there's many more possible things to come out. I think what's important here is that it did restrict discovery that might have been broader if they had answered the question honestly. And the penalty that's being imposed on them, which is, okay, there'll be more depositions and you're going to have to pay for them, Fox News. Um, It'll be something that Dominion can do and you're going to pay for. But it, it really doesn't correct the evil that was done. It doesn't correct the issue. And I think, you know, as Joyce said, the problem is any delay to allow them to fully explore this really hurts Dominion. They want to get this over with and want to get the verdict. So it isn't really a good option, and they're just going to have to settle for doing more depositions, getting more evidence. Yeah, I think um, one of the things the judge said is uh, to Fox's lawyers that they were having some serious credibility problems with the judge, yes. which is a classic yeah. understatement in light of both of these these issues. And that will hurt during the trial because the judge really is not trusting the lawyers. And, you know, one of them is a very, very well-respected lawyer who was a former U.S. attorney in the Northern District. And I, I just, it's hard for me to believe that they allowed this to happen. And these were things that were really pretty much should have been well-known. And so... It's a really horrible situation, and they have lost credibility. And I think Joyce is right. They'll be able, the Dominion people will be able to use that as further proof of the malice. Yeah. Um, Kim, I want to ask you about one of the defenses that the judge uh, excluded from evidence against Fox. Fox wanted to assert something called a newsworthiness defense. What is that defense? I, I'm, I'm not familiar with it. And and why did the judge dis- disclose it? Do you think that's going to cause any problems for, um, you know, Dominion down the road on appeal? Or you think the judge got it right? Yeah, I do think the judge got it right. But I do expect if Fox loses that this will be one of the areas where they will appeal. So essentially, when I said it's really tough to win a libel suit against a news organization, uh, for one reason is because it is the job of a, a media organization, a news organization, to talk about things that are newsworthy. And sometimes that those reports can include falsehoods. For example... You know, if we report Donald Trump saying uh, that he when he was arraigned, that the people in the the district attorney's office in New York were crying and apologizing to him as he did, (laughs) you know, he did say that you can't be sued for that, even though I think, you know. It, it could be uh, proven, perhaps, that that is not exactly true. If he if he uh, says something, if he lies tens of thousands of times, as the Washington Post uh, has reported, by reporting that lie, that's not defamation, even though it is a false piece of information, because he's the president of the United States. And the fact that he is 
saying things that are provably false is newsworthy. And mm-hmm. Fox is trying to say that was exactly what was happening here. You had people like Sidney Powell uh, who were in Trump's circle making these claims and that in itself was newsworthy and they can't be sued for that. That isn't true here because they kept putting her on in the assertion of the truth of that statement, knowing that it is false. It, the, the newsworthy exception doesn't go that far. Yeah, it, they, and they didn't frame it that way, right? Like, well, Sydney Powell's saying a bunch of crazy lies. No, right, listen, exactly. Watch her go, you know, it's interesting to watch her go. They, they, they you know, promoted it as if they were what saying, she was saying was valid, right? That Dominion was flipping votes with yeah. their machines yeah, and, try, and really I asserting it. Yeah, I think that's the big <laughs> difference here. So I think Fox will appeal, but I think they'll probably lose. Yeah. Um, Jill, this case is, uh, appears to be perhaps only the start of Fox's legal woes. Um, a Fox shareholder filed a lawsuit against Fox this week. What's that case about? And what do you think about the merits of that one? So that is a really interesting development. And this is an area of law that it's very difficult to have shareholders suing the board and having the board held liable. Um, and without getting into all the details of the Caremark standard that allows a a suit to be brought, I think this case may meet that standard because you have a prolonged knowledge of the falsity. You had them being notified of the falsity and they did nothing. And their core mission is, of course, honest news. And so I think that this shareholder suit could really withstand... a motion to dismiss, which is how many of these cases end up being dismissed uh, before going to trial. I don't think that's going to happen here. I think the evidence that the board knew what was going on, that they didn't take proper measures to prevent it from happening, that they didn't have the standards in place and didn't implement those standards or use them properly, is pretty much a possibility. So the, the board... In fact, one board member, Paul Ryan, the former Speaker of the House, actually wrote, and you know, we have evidence that he knew things were false, and he was saying, we've got to do something about this. We can't let this keep going on. And yet they did. So I think that's pretty much how it's going to end up. Yeah. And, you know, Joyce, I wonder if, um, you know, this is just the start, um, the, the tip of the iceberg, if we're not going to see more and more. Do you think that all these lawsuits are just the cost of doing business for a network like Fox? You know, if we're going to be out there uh, reporting things that are edgy, I'll say, at the least, we're going to get sued. Or do you think that if there are enough of these lawsuits, uh, it, it, they could actually take them down? You know, it's a little bit hard to assess until we see the first one and and see what the damages numbers look like. I mean, but who are we fooling? This has got to be very nerve-wracking if you're at Fox. It's hard to see how they survive this, I think. The compensatory ask is $1.6 billion, as as you pointed out, Barb, with a a B and and your little finger at the corner of your mouth, right? $1.6 billion. (laughs) Um, Punitive damages could be really crippling here. The compensatory damages, the $1.6 $1.6 billion is for what um, Dominion says they've lost in, in business, but punitives are meant to punish Fox. Yeah. And so an angry jury, who knows what they could do? Um, Fox News, their revenue um, has ranged from 12 to 14 and a quarter billion dollars a year over the last four years. So that gives you some sort of a barometer. That's their gross for, for what sort of damages they could withstand. Um, but right behind Dominion, 
There's a similar lawsuit brought by another voting machine company called Smartmatic. That's getting ready for trial. As you just pointed out, we've seen the first, but probably not the last of the shareholder lawsuits. So there's a really, a very real chance this starts to add up and put pressure on Fox. There's also the possibility of some sort of FCC regulatory action designed to inquire into the propriety of their conduct in a regulatory sense, which could have implications um, for how they do business. So lots of very interesting problems all adding up to, I think, this data point. At, At some point, do their advertisers desert them because they're worried it's bad for their brands to be associated? So both of the Justins are back in the Tennessee House where they belong. State Representatives Justin Jones and Justin Pearson were both voted in as the temporary replacements for the seats they were ordered to vacate until a special election can be held. And they seem destined to win those special elections too. This experience, I suspect, has only served to focus attention on their commitment to serve the people that they were elected to represent. But, you know, interesting, even though that's resolved for now, the focus on Tennessee remains. The lid has been ripped off of the box for everyone in the nation to see that it's still a place full of racism fueled by a desire to keep the good old boy network in place. And I'm wondering, y'all, do you feel, I mean, I'm sort of feeling it, this cautious sense of optimism, this thought that maybe Tennessee is the start of something, that the truth sets people free and that shining a little bit of sunlight on bad past practices can be a good path forward. You know, I'm old enough, um, unlike you, Barb and Kim, you guys are the young'uns, I'm old enough to remember the civil rights protests in the 60s. I'm getting a little bit of that same feeling up in Tennessee this week. So, um, Jill, why don't we start just by thinking about whether there are additional legal repercussions from the decision to remove the Justins from office before their local bodies voted to restore them You know, senators in in the United States Senate have now asked DOJ to get involved and to take a look at at what happened. What do you make of this? Any future in that DOJ investigation? So before I answer about DOJ, I want to say I think the political repercussions of this are going to be dramatic. That um, and I definitely remember I was in college during the civil rights movement. So I was an active participant. And I do have the sense that this is um, one elevating the two Justins to a role of leadership in a new civil rights movement and that it's going to have dramatic impact. And in terms of, you know, the civil rights movement, there is a possibility of a civil rights case because here you had three people who engaged in the conduct considered not to fit with the decorum of the Tennessee Senate. And one is, as she describes herself, a 60-year-old white woman, and the other are two young black legislators. And they engage in very similar conduct, and she is not expelled, and the two black legislators are. So there is a clear appearance of racial animus in the decision. And I think that that is something that could lead to a civil rights case that might impact um, going forward in this. I I think beyond racism, there is a real 
fear for me of what this is doing to democracy. And I think we have to look at, um, I think you said it, uh, Joyce, is that exposure or sunlight is the best disinfectant. And what's happened from all of this is that we've seen it firsthand. There's some unbelievable reporting about how the legislature runs in Tennessee. And I do think that while there might not be an injunction to stop future uh, efforts, and they of course learned a lesson enough that they seated these two legislatures when they were voted back in by their own communities, um, and not to continue to try to fight to keep them out. But I do think there's been enough about how the legislature will not have roll call votes when roll call votes are necessary. They will take a voice vote, and you'll hear yay and nay, and the yeas will have it, and the chair will say the nays win, and then someone will say voice vote, and there won't be, a, uh, I'm sorry, a roll call vote, and there won't be. So I think there's a lot that's going to be coming forward in Tennessee, and one of them may be a civil rights case. Yeah, I'll be interested to see what DOJ finds. I don't think there's ever been a pattern or practice um, proceeding directed against a state legislature. That's probably not something that can happen or that should happen, but it'll be interesting. You know, DOJ has technically criminal jurisdiction over conspiracies that are designed to uh, violate civil rights. Again, I think they would be very hesitant to do something that would have such overt political tones on the criminal side of the house, but you don't know what the evidence is until you investigate. So it's a, a fair request. Um, but Barb, Jill references the political side, which is I think where we all expect for there to be more progress and, and more fallout. What happens next? There are plans for a moral Monday session. Um, Reverend Barber will be in Nashville on Monday. Um, lots of pressure in the area of firearms laws, which is probably a good thing because Tennessee's laws are notoriously lax, permitting permitless carry. Um, what do you think the political landscape looks like? Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, I wonder if, as, as you were suggesting earlier, um, the Tennessee legislature didn't do uh, a big favor to the gun safety uh, movement in this case, because, you know, what could have been sort of a quiet uh, matter within the state of Tennessee has now become a national cause celeb in the same way, you know, you often talk about the civil rights activities that occurred in Alabama, uh, you know, uh, Bloody Sunday, uh, people were so outraged or seeing the fire hoses with the dogs and all that sort of stuff that it creates um, political pressure to do the right thing when perhaps if uh, the abuses had continued quietly, they might not have. And so I think it's going to bring a lot more, um, you know, public attention to the issue. When you think about, uh, you know, Nashville just suffered this awful shooting uh, with children at a school and there, but yet their law is moving toward being more lenient. They already have uh, no, no pit permitless uh, handguns. They're moving toward permitless for all firearms, which would include assault weapons. As a result, Smith & Wesson is moving uh, their headquarters from Connecticut to Tennessee. So um, I think that there are people who are rightly outraged that their gun laws are moving in the wrong direction. So um, I, I think that we may see some political repercussions here. I, I don't see any criminal um, charges coming here. I don't think DOJ wants to get in the middle of the sanctions that a political body puts on its own members. Um, but it is troubling to see the expulsion of these legislators. And I think it is a relic of 
the Donald Trump era that if it's not criminal, it's not wrong. And, you know, so often we talk about um, the difference between uh, lawful, lawful and awful. Um, and as long as it's not a crime, then we can do it. But uh, the the response here of expelling these uh, two members of the legislature because of a protest. Sure, maybe they violated rules of decorum and there are other sanctions that may be appropriate. You know, they have to leave. They can't participate in debate for a period of time, whatever it is, some sort of censure. But to immediately expel them is such an overreaction. I don't think it's a crime, but I think it's just highly you know, inappropriate. And so I guess the repercussion would be for the people of Tennessee to you know, speak through political consequences. I don't know if that's going to happen in Tennessee, but I think that there will be a lot of national pressure now for Tennessee to think carefully about whether it wants to continue down this road of making it easier to get dangerous assault weapons in their state or to you know, put in place some common sense reform that will protect children and others from these assault weapons. I'm sorry. Did you say common sense? We don't use that down here in the South when it comes to guns. You know, I think it's remarkable, actually. Most gun owners that I know favor licensing measures. They favor training requirements. It's really strange. You have to wonder what could possibly be inducing our elected leaders to do this sort of stuff unless maybe some of the gun manufacturers are managing to line their campaign finance funds, um, which I think it's, you know, one of those follow the money things. So look, I agree with you, by the way, about the legislature. I think that um, in the criminal sense, it's lawful but awful. I wrote a column on Substack right after all this happened, pointing out that there was a 1966 case coming out of Georgia um, where Julian Bond was elected to the Georgia legislature, a black man who spoke out against the Vietnam War, and they refused to seat Julian Bond in Georgia. And the case made its way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, you know, there are race claims here. Julian Bond was a black man, but we don't have to decide the race issues because they clearly violated his freedom of speech. I think that case is still good precedent here. And if the Justins hadn't been reinstated, I think that they would have had a good civil case, both on the speech and the race claims. And that both of those claims really hang over the Tennessee legislature's head moving forward. You know, they, they may survive this little bit of damage. Um, if they do it again, though, I think that there will be legal repercussions. And, and Barb, our former boss, Eric Holder, who's involved in this now, um, representing, I think, Justin Pearson, made the point on Twitter that what's going on in the Georgia legislature, or rather in the Tennessee legislature, is only possible because of gerrymandering. It's only because of the heavy gerrymandering in these districts. There's some reporting being done that suggests that the Tennessee Speaker of the House may be vulnerable. It's possible that he no longer lives in the district that he represents, that he's purchased a home in Nashville and, and moved his family. So, Jill, back to our sun, sunlight conversation. I think sometimes you shine a little light. There's no telling um, what people will learn about. But, you know, the interesting thing here is, is that these events happen. It's a juxtaposition of gun violence, of race, and of institutional dysfunction. And Kim, there's an interesting historical context here. Sunday is the 60th anniversary of Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. Student marches followed in the wake of, of that letter. That's a history that's not all that widely remembered outside of um, maybe just Birmingham, certainly the, the Deep South. But it was young leaders that provoke change. Do you think that there are some reasons to be 
optimistic with what we see happening in Tennessee or is that too much? No, I think it's absolutely true. I think that's one reason why we have seen this profound uh, response to these lawmakers and, and what has happened to them. I think that's why we have seen the protests and the marches and, and the acts of support. I think it's, it's, it's everything that you all have talked about. It's because of the recognition of the racism that is going on here, for sure, and the deep history of that in Tennessee. I think it's also the, the claim by the people, the Republicans who opposed uh, these lawmakers, uh, likening, likening them to insurrectionists after what people saw on January 6th was just um, absolutely repulsive in a way that it in itself seemed like a, an attack on democracy and people have seen how fragile democracy is and how important it is for it to be upheld. And I also think it's the point that you made about freedom of speech, the First Amendment. Part of the First Amendment isn't just the freedom of speech, but it's the right to petition the government for redress, which is exactly what they were doing. I think it's wild how the First Amendment, um, the only part of it that some Republicans seem to like is the part that um, protects religion, but only, you know, like white evangelicals, like not all religion, but just the part that protects the white evangelicals and all the rest of the First Amendment, you know, forget it, let that go. So, I, I mean, that just doesn't work and that doesn't work with the American people. So I think, and it certainly doesn't work in the eyes of young people. They see clearly what's happening here. And I think that that is a big, a big reason to be optimistic here. Some disappointing news came this week, at least for me, and I think also some of our listeners. The Justice Department announced it is no longer pursuing federal charges in the death of Shanquella Robinson, the 25-year-old woman who went on vacation with so-called friends in Mexico and never came home alive. If you recall, these uh, so-called friends initially told Shanquella's family that she died of alcohol poisoning during the trip, but then a video of her being viciously beaten by one of her vacation mates surfaced. And then an autopsy initially indicated that she suffered trauma. The FBI later said the cause of death was inconclusive. But the fact that her assault and death happened in San Jose del Cabo created a host of issues, some of which I'd like to flesh out with you all because I have so many questions about what happened here. Barb, I wanna start with you. You have experience dealing with cases and investigations that cross international borders. Initially, Mexican officials said that they were investigating this case for something uh, called femicide. I think that's how they uh, categorize it in, uh, in Mexico. And then U.S. officials became involved and were investigating it. But now here we are. Nothing is happening on the U.S. side. I don't see any uh, movement on the Mexican side as far as we can see. Talk about the challenges that U.S. prosecutors had here in this case. Yeah, whenever you're dealing with events occurring outside the country, the uh, prosecutors have to rely on treaties. And there are two treaties that come into play, extradition treaties and mutual legal assistance treaties for the collection of evidence. Sometimes those can cause some significant delays. I know sometimes the most significant delays we had when I was investigating cases were just right across the river from Detroit in Canada, where things could just move very, very slowly. 
but you have to go through diplomatic channels to access evidence. Even if you know somebody in the police department, as I sometimes did in Canada, you have to go through diplomatic channels to get evidence. And so that can create delay. So if you want to get, uh, in this case, I believe an autopsy was requested and there was significant delay that may have actually compromised the ability of the United States to determine the cause of death. Uh, Apparently the autopsy was not done until after she had been embalmed, which I think makes it very difficult for uh, a medical examiner to determine that. The other issue besides collection of evidence, as I said, is extradition. Um, The United States and and Mexico have extradition treaty that permits each to extradite to the other country. So that can be useful. Um, It is a federal offense for someone to murder an American citizen uh, on foreign soil. And so uh, if the Justice Department wanted to charge someone in this case, they could. And then the question would be, can they get the suspect back in the United States? But in this instance, um, any possible suspects are in the United States. So that wouldn't be an issue. So I think that's why um, the lawyer for the family seems to now be focused on prosecution in Mexico and is focusing efforts on making sure that the United States will extradite an American back to Mexico if charges are filed in this case. I believe that they would, unless there's some reason to think that the prosecution is uh, unsound, but it's really not the job of the prosecutors to look at anything other than the four corners of the charging document. They don't assess the evidence. If there's a valid prosecution, uh, an indictment gets filed, uh, it is one that we would request extradition for, it's a crime in this country, then the U.S. would extradite into Mexico. Yeah. So Joyce, you have experience too um, with a high profile murder case that took place outside of the United States. What similarities and differences do you see between this case and that of Natalie Holloway? Right. So Natalie Holloway, for people who um, don't remember this case, although it got an enormous amount of national attention, international attention, I find a lot of people actually still know her name. Um, She was a high school graduate from a wealthy Mountain Brook, Alabama family. The kids at her high school went uh, on a post-graduation trip to Aruba. And Natalie Holloway, the morning they were supposed to leave, didn't show up, subsequently could not be found. And although they've never recovered her body, she's believed to be dead. She's actually been declared legally dead at this point. So this happens in 2005. You know, it's different than Shanquella's case because obviously there's there's no body, um, but there was a suspect, and that was the interesting thing. In that case, a Dutch man named Joran van der Sloot was believed to be the murderer. There was significant evidence against him, um, but we couldn't do the murder prosecution because we didn't know the story of the murder. We didn't have a body, and ultimately... When I was U.S. attorney, some years later, five or six years later, we prosecuted Vandersloot. We filed an indictment against him for extortion. Um, I can't take any credit for that. That was my brilliant appellate chief's legal theory. And unfortunately, Vandersloot committed another murder and is currently in custody in Peru with our indictment sitting as a backup behind that if he's ever released by Peruvian authorities. But it's difficult to maneuver in a foreign country. And sometimes you have to have a creative theory. I wonder if DOJ might not be able to do something like that here, even if they can't charge the murder straight up. But I mean, you know, persistence pays off. Look, here is a big difference, though, between the two cases. Natalie Holloway was was young, white, wealthy, very attractive, and the case garnered sustained attention 
in the press. There was a real focus that, frankly, made it easier for us in, in my office to do our job because people called in tips. We got information. That's how we ended up with that prosecution. Um, and, and we know that it's a problem. We know that black girls and black women, when they go missing or when they're victims of crimes, they don't get that same level of attention in the press, whether that's explicit bias or implicit bias. Um, is something that people who are experts in those areas can debate. I think it's something that we should be open about and candid about. This case, this victim deserves justice, just like Natalie Holloway deserved justice. And I hope that um, it won't simply be allowed to fade into the dust, into the woodwork. Yeah, that's such an important point, Joyce, because I think in this case, as uh, initially uh, has been the case in in other cases. It is sustained attention within the black community, within black media, on black Twitter. Um, that brings t- cases like this uh, to the forefront in in the first place. Even Breonna Taylor's case was not initially gaining national attention until black communities pushed it to the foreground, telling people, you know, saying, say her name. She is one of the people who is a victim of police violence. And I do think in this case, there has been much more energy um, among black people on social media uh, and in black media platforms than there has been. Of course, there's been some coverage um, in, in the national media, but nowhere near as much. And I hope that that does not affect prosecuting decisions. So thank you for making that point choice. Um, Jill, the the Robinson's uh, family attorneys say that they are disappointed in the DOJ decision, but not deterred. If you were, if you were advising them, what the family, what would you say? Are there other avenues? How likely, for example, do you think extradition as Barb laid out can happen here? Is there, are there other means, maybe civil suits? What, What would, what would you say to the family if you were advising them? I would say three things, and and they have very good lawyers advising them, so they don't need any extra advice. But um, since we don't know what they're being advised, here's some things that might happen. One is to try to understand why DOJ did it. Their announcement doesn't really make clear. They just said no federal offense at this time and that they would keep looking at evidence. But there are two other routes that they could go, and one, as Barbara mentioned, It is possible to extradite a U.S. citizen to a foreign country for prosecution. And uh, it has happened in other cases. There's a a fairly recent one um, where a person who was a producer for the TV show Survivor uh, was extradited in 2012 to Mexico uh, for the killing of his wife in Cancun. And so it can be done. What it requires is that there be probable cause. The U.S. will look at the documents, the charging documents, and any other evidence they have to establish that there is probable cause that this crime happened and that the person whose extradition is sought is is possibly involved in it. So that's a possibility. The, The U.S. opens a lot of extradition cases every year, Um, but that includes both our requests to foreign countries and their requests to us, and some of the requests to us are for return of a citizen of that country, not U.S. citizens. So I don't know exactly how many there are, but there are, it's not one or two, it's it's more than that. 
The other thing, the third thing that you could do, and, you know, remember O.J. Simpson. He ended up recovering, not he, the family of uh, Nicole Brown and um, Ronald Goldman got $33.5 million in damages. And that judgment is still pending because it hasn't been paid off. It's been extended through 2025, which when it was extended seemed like forever, but since we're in 2023, is starting to look like, well, will it need to be extended again? So a civil court has a different standard of proof. They only have to think that the person charged did the crime beyond a reasonable doubt? No. Beyond a reasonable doubt is for the criminal case. In this case, it's just by a preponderance of the evidence that the jury has to find that it's more likely than not that the defendant did this. And so in this case, although there was an acquittal in the criminal case uh, after, uh, I mean, I don't know how many of you remember the trial. It was quite the trial of the century. And if the glove fits, you must acquit, or if the judge glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. Um, but in the civil case, there was a easy verdict against O.J. Simpson. So that would certainly be something that they could try. Well, I hope that the family is able to get some sort of closure here because I can only imagine that the decision by the DOJ, even if it was the only decision that they could make, given the evidence. I'm sure that that compounded their pain in this case. And uh, I appreciate you all for helping me understand it better and hopefully helping our listeners understand it better too. It's time for our favorite part of the show, answering your questions. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw@politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we'll answer questions, as many of them as we can. And we had some great questions this week. Barb, I'm going to ask you the first one. From Greg in Peabody, how can it be that a 21-year-old airman has access to classified information about military secrets that can be spread over the internet? Barb, before you answer, if Greg is from Massachusetts, it's, it's pronounced Peabody. Um, Wait, okay. what? Say that again. Pe- say that, that was fast. What, Peabody? Peabody. 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 Yes. Peabody. Right. Well, okay. well, well, it doesn't say Massachusetts here, so we don't know. It could All be right. Peabody in some other state. It could. Greg, right. let us know where you're from. All right. In the spirit <laughs> of uh, Massachusetts, we'll say Pe- Peabody. Is that how you say? Um, but yeah, no laughing matter. Serious case. A, a young man named Jack Teixeira, who's 21 years old um, and, and an airman, as, as Greg says, um, has been arrested uh, and expected to be charged today with violations of the Espionage Act and um, uh, Ill- illegal retention of classified documents. Um, you know, if, if people haven't kept up with this, this is the, the guy who appears to be responsible for sharing on social media, a small gaming group uh, that met on Discord with all kinds of military secrets about Ukraine and Russia and some very significant secrets. Um, and the question Greg asks is how how could it be that this young man had access to it? Well, he was an IT professional, 
And so I imagine in that role, he had access to these things. And, you know, it's an interesting problem because as we live in this digital world, we have to have IT professionals who take care of the computer systems and it gives them access to all kinds of things that, you know, 40 years ago, no one would have had access to, no one person would have had access to, except, you know, maybe the president, but even he had to ask other people for it. And now, you know, the ability to just put things on a thumb drive or just download endless numbers of documents. And also, I think this is very much a consequence of one of the problems identified in the 9-11 Commission report, which was that our intelligence community was too siloed, that each one was very protective of its information and didn't share with each other. And so as a result of that, there's been a lot of improvement, so to speak, in information sharing where various agencies share information with others. But of course, the consequence of that is now people can access things that were stovepiped before. So I think it's a real problem and one that our, our federal government, especially the Defense Department, is really going to have to reconsider about you know who gets access to these things and making sure there's just a need to know. But when it's an IT professional who's taking care of the very systems, now they caught him. Uh, you know He's presumed innocent, of course, but it appears that the FBI thinks they have the right person. But nonetheless, the harm has been done and it's, it's some pretty consequential harm. It's such an interesting question and answer, Barb. And listening to you, it made me realize back in Watergate, when we were trying to figure out who Deep Throat was, mm-hmm. we would, as something would come out in the newspaper saying, Deep Throat said, da, da, da. We'd go, well, here's five people who know that piece of information. Then you'd get to the next one, you'd go, well, only one of those knows this information. Maybe that's Deep oh. Throat. Then you'd get to the third, and that person wouldn't know that. And it never occurred to us to look at the FBI director who would have all of that in his purview. And that's the same thing you're saying here is these IT professionals can get into anything. So that's very interesting. Our next question is one that I think Kim will be able to answer. It comes from Ben. Can you explain the blue slip process that appears to be holding up the appointment of judges in certain states and have both parties equally utilized and or abused the process? Well, yes, Ben, I can explain the blue slip process. (laughs) And like many things, including, you know, things like the filibuster and other rules, it has to do with racism. Okay. So generally speaking, the the blue slip process was created when there was a nominee to the federal judiciary as sort of a courtesy to the lawmakers, the the members of the Senate, uh, from where that judge uh, nominee comes from. It's a little blue slip, and it gives them the the opportunity to either write something nice and that they think that this nominee is great, write something and say, eh, not so great, or say nothing at all. And they would pass this along, and it really wouldn't have any consequence. At, At most, it would mean that when the Senate Judiciary Committee voted on this person, they may vote for them unfavorably, but it was the nomination would still go to the floor for a vote. Well, that was until about 1950, when a senator who chaired the Judiciary Committee, committee named James Eastland of Mississippi, uh, this reminds me of that Nina Simone song, Mississippi, uh, he was the first person to use the blue sh- the blue slip process as a hold, as a stop on judicial appointments if one of the senators from that state objected 
to that nominee. And the reason that he did that was to use it to stop judges who would uphold civil rights directives, things like desegregation, and keep them from ascending to the bench. At the time, it was used both for federal uh, district and appellate judges. Uh, it has since no longer been allowed to be used for appellate judges, but you can still use it for um, for trial level, for district court judges, and they are being used right now by Republicans to try to slow down Joe Biden and his ability to appoint judges to the bench. So it's rooted in racism, but it's being used right now. And yes, it has been used by both parties over time, but it is rooted in racism. And our last question comes from Jennifer in St. George, Utah, a beautiful place near some of the greatest national parks ever. What's the latest in the case involving the medication abortion drug? So we are taping the podcast Friday afternoon. And while we have been taping, word has just come down that the Supreme Court has entered a stay of Amarillo, Texas Judge Matthew Kaczmarek's order, which would have essentially ended access to Mifepristal, one of the two drugs used for medication abortion. Um, it is not the stay, though, that the Justice Department or, or the drug manufacturer had asked for. They had asked, and, and our listeners will remember that what's going on in this Mifepristone case right now, this isn't a final decision on the merits of the case. This is just an early skirmish over whether there's going to be an in, injunction that will lock in the status quo while the litigation is ongoing. And so, Interestingly enough, Justice Samuel Alito, the circuit justice um, for Texas, has entered a stay, but it will only last until next Wednesday. He has said that he will give until Tuesday as a timeline for the defendants, these are the proportions of taking Mifepristone off the market, to respond um, to DOJ's application for a stay. What this sounds like to me is the Supreme Court is teeing it up for a fairly quick decision on the uh, issue of whether there should be an injunction, I wonder if we what we might not see is a decision by them to take this case out of the hands of the lower courts, right? It's not just the Texas ruling. There's the ruling in the Ninth Circuit that conflicts with this ruling in Texas, ordering that in at least 17 states in D.C., Mifepristone has to stay on the market. That order may even be a little bit broader at this point. And so lots of confusion Lots of good reasons for the Supreme Court to take the case, um, but not a great sign that they wouldn't agree to enter a long-term injunction that would last throughout the course of the litigation. Great news to hear that there's at least a temporary additional stay uh, on this decision from Texas. Thank you, Joyce. And thank you all for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, and me, Jill Wine Banks. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag Sisters in Law. As you all know by now, Sisters in Law are going on the road. Come and join us as we record the podcast live on stage. We will be discussing the legal topics of the day and answering your questions live right there. We're starting off in Portland, Oregon on May 12th, New York City on May 19th, and Washington, D.C. on May 21. There are still some tickets available, but hurry, they are going fast. Go to politicon.com tour to get your tickets today. We can't wait to meet you. 
And please support this week's sponsors, Noom, HelloFresh, Article, and Olive and June. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode, hashtag SistersInLaw. So y'all, I had so much fun this week. I was feeling sorry for myself because I've had a lot of writing to do. And so I had, don't tell anyone, don't share this. I had run out to my favorite local chocolate maker, Chocolata in Birmingham, to pick up. I knew that she had some um, apricots, dried apricots dipped in dark chocolate. They're amazing. And so I go in to pick up a few of these for myself and I decide to get Bob some chocolate for his birthday. And the woman who runs the store says that she's excited about us going on tour. And she asks if she can send little boxes of chocolate along with me for the rest of you. And it got me started thinking. I was so excited about being (laughs) with y'all in person and bringing chocolate, right? Oh, my god, That's fabulous. Now we're going to all have to find some local goodie. I'm bringing Chicago hot dogs. You're going to bring Chicago hot dogs on the plane? I'm bringing peanuts. They may or may not be from the plane. (laughs) (laughs) Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. Alabama's got me so upset.